Hi there, my name is Neil Osborne. I am the chief writer and lead singer of the rock band 5440 from the West Coast of Canada, and you're listening to Talking Blues. Let me begin by asking you how music came into your life. Uh, fairly early, I would guess. Uh, so I'm the youngest of four siblings. I have a brother that's seven years older than me. So he would bring home records when I was, you know, six, seven, eight. In fact, he had a little band called the Junior Beatles, and uh, they played. <laughs> they played. Uh, they put on this single, and they would play cardboard cutout guitars, and he would get all my friends pay five cents and my mom would make popcorn and we'd pretend to be the fans of the band. And <laughs> so that's, that was my first introduction of, you know, people who were musicians were heroes because my older brother was a hero to me. And um, yeah, from then he would bring home records and say, listen to this, you know, I remember when he brought home the first Led Zeppelin record and Neil Young's After the Gold Rush and, you know, many records that I would just listen to over and over and over. and you know, became very obsessed with the whole thing. So you so. took your brother's cardboard guitar. <laughs> then he started a real band, and then I really got into watching them play and hanging out. So, yeah. Is it because of his band that you started playing the guitar? Yeah. So he, uh, as time went on, I guess fast forward to really later for me, later start, I guess I was about 12 or 13, maybe 14. Where he was in a, one of the things he did was a, uh, a duo at a lounge, like the Holiday Inn Lounge. And they had to learn Lion Eyes, you know, by the Eagles. You can't hide your lion eyes. So he said, if I transcribe the words, because in those days there's no internet. There's no, right. you know, you can't sort of, you have to listen to the record to hear, know the lyrics and figure it out. Pick up the lino, move it back and forth. Exactly. So... He uh, said, if you transcribe the words, I'll show you a D chord. And I was like, wow, what? <laughs> and I'll loan you my other guitar, my other guitar, that you can practice your D chord. So I faithfully transcribed Lion Eyes, and he taught me a D chord. And I sang every song I ever knew just playing a D chord. You know what I mean? <laughs> just like one chord, singing every Beatles song, every Rolling, like every song I could think of over that D chord. <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. Still one of my favorite moments. <laughs> Uh, then did you learn other chords? Is that pretty well the way it's been going? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I probably transcribed a dozen songs, got a dozen chords, and he's like, you only need three. So. And the D chord's yeah. used a lot, too. Yeah, D chord's a good one. G's probably a little more prominent in our work, but yeah. <laughs> when did songwriting come into your life? So... That's not too far from there, to be quite honest. Um, that is how I sort of stumbled on something you know would be original in the sense that I would um, try to write a song or try to figure out a song just from a few chords and a few notes. Like, oh, this could be this song, I think. And then I'd start to play and it would go to a different chord and I'd sing along and I'd go, well, that's not that song. You know, that's not Neil Young's Tell Me Why, but it could be something else altogether, which is kind of cool in its own way. So that's kind of how I discovered how to create, just kind of stumbling, stumbling into it. Didn't actually write songs for to perform until much later. I went to Berkeley College of Music for a semester, 
1979, 78, I can't remember now. And uh, just as the new wave punk scene was breaking out, and uh, my buddy from high school said, don't do that jazz stuff, come back home. And you can, we can start playing right now. <laughs> well, I'm curious, when you, when you decided to go, what was the goal of attending Berkeley? Uh, well, I, I had a pretty good guitar teacher, and I kind of lost interest at that point in time. You know, later in high school, the whole fusion thing was happening, you know, with Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock, and those are my heroes then, uh, John McLaughlin on guitar. Um, so I thought that I wanted to be a jazz guitar player, you know, or, or fusion at the very least. And so I memorized, you know, took me hours like how to play Joe Pass or Herb Ellis style and got all the books. And I had a pretty good teacher, a guy named Oliver Gannon, who gave me a referral letter. And then I got to Boston and I was, I was 18, and probably the youngest person there. And there's like 500 guitar players. <laughs> it was like, what am I doing here? So, uh, you know, I gave it my, my all, but I, I could tell pretty quickly my heart wasn't in it. I remember when I had my personal guitar teacher, you know, every, you, just, you take various courses, right? Arranging, listening analysis, ear training, um, uh, and private lesson and, and, and ensemble work. And um, my private lesson teacher was very good. He was a good friend of my teacher from Vancouver. And uh, as I was going into my class, he introduced me to the student before and he said that was his best student, and he was graduating four year four year degree, and so that's great. He was a super nice guy. I met him, sat down, and I just something came to me for some reason. And I said, "So that guy that I just met, who's going to graduate this year, like, so what's gonna what's he gonna do? Like, what's gonna happen to him?" And he said, "Oh well, he, he's one of the best. If he's really lucky, he might get in a you know on a cruise ship or an orchestra pit. If he's really lucky." like in a Broadway show, but he'll probably be a teacher at a high school. And I just went, oh, no, <laughs> I'm not going four years to not be the best <laughs> and to like hope for being a teacher. I just went, I, I can't do that. So as soon as I got the letter, it was a letter from, from my buddy Brad in high school, come back. I just went, my parents weren't happy to tell you the truth, but dropped out. And came came back and we started a band and my gosh we were playing within three months. So, wow! But I wonder. So, were you playing in a band before you went to Berkeley? No, just just you know jamming around with a couple of friends. But that's uh, it. Like no formal bands, no real musical. No, I never really performed. Wow! The truth. A little bit in like theater in high school. You know, it's like. As my theater project, I put a little band together or something like that. But so, had you not asked that teacher what happens to this guy when he graduates? Yeah. What did you envision would have happened when you graduated? Uh, well, I don't know. You know, <laughs> I mean, I guess you always, when you were a kid, you know, growing up and, and evolving, you know, as an 18 year old into oh, so many changes that happen between say 18 and even 28. Um, I kind of figured something would have emerged. I would have ended up somewhere doing something, possibly a teacher, I guess, you know, it just depends. But uh, I did get to see John McLaughlin play there twice, which is very inspiring. So 
that was tempting to stay and, and put in the work. But so I you didn't. must have been half decent to want to pursue that type of music and also to be accepted into Berkeley. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think looking back, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. I just memorized stuff like crazy. And I did get fairly good marks for two things. One was arranging, uh, which I could do some good arrangements of jazz standards, you know, different. Just like, oh, let's just put a pedal through this whole song and see how that goes. And I uh, got pretty good marks in my, my first semester that way. And also improvisation. So I had a natural kind of knack for just rhythmically mostly. You know, guitar playing is really string drumming, so. What did you learn about yourself as a musician from that experience at Berkeley? I think I learned primarily that I would want to get more involved in creating and performing, you know, rather than being part of another group or being part of something, you know, contributing in that way. It was a little more egotistical, I guess, and that I wanted to create my own stuff and, and realize my own visions musically and perform it as well, rather than, uh, you know, maybe just be an arranger or maybe just, you know, read sheet music in, in an orchestra pit if I was even that lucky or good. So none of that really appealed to me. Were you good at reading? It was okay. You know, to be quite honest, once again, if I if I had the chart for a while, you know, <laughs> give me an hour and then I could sit down and pretend I'm reading it and I kind of kind of knew it. <laughs> so, so you get this letter and you think, okay, I'm going to go home. Mm-hmm. Do you know musically what you want to do? No. Um, well, it was sort of that scene that was coming coming alive. You know, with I was in Boston, so the band The Cars, I think, was pretty big, uh, Elvis Costello and then the British bands called The Clash and it was, it seemed more uh, important, you know, it was like culturally changing. It was like, that was, I think when still rock music, you know, represented a cultural shift, you could look to it as to see where the, the pulse of society, especially in the West was going. Um, and you felt like you were part of something. Whereas jazz, you know, Fusion kind of broke the envelope a little bit, but mostly you're just, you know, walking on familiar roads, and and it's hard to be good doing that because there's so many before you that was so great. Mm-hmm. So, but you go back and now you have to figure out the live scene and the band scene and performing. Yeah. So this is all yeah. new to you. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty electric and literally and physically and metaphorically and, you know, just being so scared on stage and the and the, uh, the thrill. It was pretty amazing. So that's pretty addictive, you know. You don't even know what happened and you got off somehow. <laughs> and, you know, it's like the story of golfers, right? It's like they have the shittiest game ever and then they, <laughs> when's the next one? <laughs> um, when you say scary, like how scary was that? Initially, for the first few years, it was pretty scary, like walking into an unknown, you know, ocean of whatever is going to happen and somehow getting through it. Um, uh, So, but it was also, like I say, very thrilling. So scary in the sense of just, you know, all eyes are on you all of a sudden. You know, it's not something that I was used to. 
and and you realize that you can't just hide you know you can't hide in the corner with your music stand or whatever uh, you have to perform and interpret what you're performing right? are you singing by this point yeah no initially we were going to find a singer uh, but we couldn't find anybody that we had one guy that he didn't want to do it <laughs> we thought he was good <laughs> but he, he went to university and then uh, then Brad and I divided the singing and then he decided that I was a little better and then, so then I did it all we were a three piece initially and you got to remember in, in in that scene in Vancouver the underground music scene it was quite a wide spectrum I mean there's a lot of stuff that I would even call atonal like there were some art students that just went out there you know and, and went as extremely out there as they could and then there's just the hardcore straight thrashy punk stuff and any arty stuff in between it was actually quite amazing how it all got along all those different styles at the time how did you envision what you were doing like what was what was is it was it 5440 by this time or not yet oh yeah it was always 5440 yeah how did you see the band at that point hmm um well, we modeled ourselves after sort of the post-punk, dark British scene, but we also threw in a little, I don't know what you'd say, Americana in there. Uh, so, um, you know, we just jammed a lot and whatever kind of took us into an, a state of getting lost in it, uh, we would try to hang on to and keep and we'd make these bizarro arrangements at initially, you know, there were sometimes three, four songs in one, it seemed like. Yeah, and I think a lot of bands go through that. They're trying to figure out their style and learn how to write a song. I mean, we thought they were killer pop songs, but if you listen to them now, you're like, no, that's pretty weird and out there. It's good in itself, you know. Right. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if we had a vision so much as just, just enjoyed creating and then, and then playing it. And it seemed to draw enough of an audience that at least other musicians at the time liked us enough to ask us to play with them. So that's how we sort of grew is a lot of bands wanted us to play with them. And then we got, I guess, after a couple of years big enough where we could play our own show and ask bands to play with us. And that's sort of how it grew. Did you think at that point you were a strong, stronger live performer or stronger songwriter? Um, probably, uh, well, it was, it was both. We enjoyed the songwriting more, uh, in, in those days we didn't, you know, initially, <clears throat> although we did fairly quickly actually release stuff. You, so you would play stuff that you wrote. Nobody had any other chance to hear it other than if they came to see you play it. Um, but that was a whole experience. You're performing it, you know, on stage. And you're being really passionate about it. And that translates, seemed to have translated. Um, but the writing was always, always so fun and special because you're creating something out of nothing. It's amazing how that happens. It's like you're inventing new language mm -hmm. on the spot. It's like, wow. It's so, I remember just being so thrilled that we were doing this 
like just, and then as a group, you know, putting it together, three or four musicians delivering that. It's, it's not, nothing to, to be taken for granted, I don't think. Because nowadays people make records on laptops, which is fine, you know, but there's something about getting three or four musicians together and getting a groove or getting a style and sort of seeing where it follows. You need a good drummer that can kind of keep you going, but it's just, there's a special quality of that experience. I, I don't know if you would see it this way because you were living through this, but things happen pretty quickly for you guys. Right? Like you had an EP out relatively soon after getting together. You, you signed with a major label not too long after, and you had yeah. hit records. Well, it's, yeah, putting it like that, <laughs> that is kind of true. <laughs> but there's a lot of steps and a lot of stuff in between that happens. Uh yeah, I mean, I think because we were always motivated and uh, ambitious to keep creating and growing musically that, that things sort of fell into place. I remember an older artist, musician friend of mine, uh, what was his name? Colin somebody. You know, he talked about art because he's mostly an artist. And he says, you can try to make something that is popular and people will be attracted to, or you can try to nurture your own sort of I don't know, numinous or centrifugal force, and then people will be attracted to that, and it can grow that way. And uh, initially, we I think that's a, that's where we were focused on, and things started to just grow without us really noticing. And all of a sudden, you know, then you notice, like the major label deal was kind of trippy and overwhelming <laughs> at the same time. But this we, yeah, is you know. why. Was this not something you sought after? No, uh, uh, although it became, I remember quite clearly, I think it was 19, it would have been 1986, five. Um, you know, we put out our own EP. We, we were part of another EP. We put out our own album, all from working in family businesses and, you know, part-time jobs, enough money to, get some after midnight time in a studio and, you know, pay for the pressings and all these sort of things. And, uh, you know, we had more songs we wanted to do and no money, no, you know, no way to make it happen. And uh, it was kind of a crux. They're like, well, what's going to happen? You know, can't sort of get, get to the next record out. That's, that's all we really wanted. I don't know, about a week later, we got a phone call from a manager that Warner Brothers wanted to sign us. And I was like, whoa, you know, what? <laughs> so, why? <laughs> well, was that because the band was creating a buzz? Was it because they heard the your yeah, people from Yeah, so I think it was, uh, what's his name, Macklem, Steve Macklem, who was Katie Lang's manager. And Katie Lang got signed down there, and they, they asked him, well, what else is going on up in... Canada and they go, oh, just got to see this band, 5440. So they sent a couple people up and liked what they saw and they brought us down and we did this showcase for all the labels and it was just so, you know, it, believe it or not, that's not what we intended when we started the band. You know, it wasn't about a record label. It was just about, we didn't even really know. We were so naive. We just wanted to keep making music and going on the road and, you know, 
you know, our first, our manifesto was to survive to the next gig, to survive to the next record. That's all. That, that was it. Uh, Can you give course, us um, an idea of, like, the four-song EP? What kind of cost would that have been at that time for you to have to save up? Yeah, uh, probably about $1,000, maybe. Maybe not even that much. This is done in a 16 track, two inch tape. You know, once again, this is, you couldn't record at home like people do now. Right. I mean, I have a pretty decent studio, you know, just over there <laughs> on the other wing of the house here. And, uh, uh, you couldn't do that then, you know, you had to have a big two inch machine. When we did the Set the Fire record, which was the album, we went in after midnight, it was $25 an hour. We went in with Dave Ogilvie, who was a good friend of ours. And he, he, the, the board had to be zeroed and cleaned and everything by 6 a.m. Because they would come in with, like, sometimes an orchestra to do jingles and, you know, all kinds of that. Like, the moneymaker. Yeah, even music, all music that was on the radio or even for ads had to be recorded right. by musicians back in those days. Not like a laptop program and, you know, these days so you know we had to be out of there but we got it for 25 bucks an hour so you know six hours midnight to six uh there were tough days i'll tell you <laughs> going to denny's at 6 30 in the morning for your breakfast <laughs> and then going to sleep <laughs> and yeah. you were working full-time no we were working part-time so uh my family had a print print shop printing business business cards and letterheads and that kind of thing and brad the bass player I started with his family ran a, an aluminum recycling plant. So he was living there and the sort of security man's house and, you know, working when he could. And then I worked when I could for the family. And then the other members of the band, as they came, we'd give them jobs too. So we'd sort of make enough money that we could go on the road. <laughs> and what did going so, on the road mean back then? Where did you go? We would go, so initially, like I said earlier, the uh, we started to do some of our own shows, and then we brought a band called. Uh, what were they called? I can't remember. There's a band called B Team from San Francisco. There's a couple Seattle bands that uh, heard about us and asked us to go play with them in Seattle, and then uh, they we would ask them to come play with us, and then when we were in Seattle, they do these things where it would be a Vancouver band and then a Portland band and a Seattle band. And so we met the Portland band and then did that same thing and to San Francisco and down to LA. So we didn't even hit Alberta uh, till well after we'd been to California a number of times. We never hit Toronto until we were signed to Warner Brothers. It's just too far. <laughs> and did you have goals? Well, other than no. make it to the next gig? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You know, I think about it, we were just, I mean, Brad, you know, one of his, like I said, survival and make our next record. But the other thing was, you know, make sure we can tell the folks when we were on stage where our next show is. You know, So we always want to make sure we had another gig that we could say. And the other thing that, that we said was, you know, you're only as good as the gig that you're playing, you already earned. The gig, so the gig you're playing now is you're earning the next gig. In other words, you're creating fans, you're creating a buzz that you'll get to play somewhere else, hopefully a better, bigger, or newer place. 
And that's still the philosophy that we have. You know, we try to do our best foot forward all the time because they lead to things. Uh, great experiences, great shows, great times. That's not changed at all. How much did the world change once you got signed to the major label, Warner Reprise label? Uh, it was it was kind of weird and overwhelming because everything was DIY up until that point. And then, you know, we had young guys as our managers. They were kind of our age and from other bands, and they their bands kind of petered out, and uh, they took on managing us. And we were all very naive dealing with the executive situation down there. And, you know, when we wanted to do something, you know, we would just do it whether it was mail a record somewhere or go phone call somewhere or knock on a door. And all of a sudden we had, there was this language and this process of how things were done that was very uh, confusing and intimidating and, and at the same time thrilling. And I don't, I don't think we really grasped it as well as we could have or perhaps should have. Um, and then of course we got dropped after three records with Warner Brothers because they didn't really take down in the States. And that's a weird feeling because up till then, you know, everything we did was we did it on our own and we were happy with it and did it the best we could and then we move on to the next one. There's never, you don't drop yourself, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? You know, you're not, it was weird. We didn't comprehend that we were actually in partnership or under contract to and that sort of thing uh, until we were dropped that we sort of figured, what just happened? You know, but fortunately, Columbia picked us up uh, out of Canada right after that. So. But you, when you got dropped, you were making pretty decent headway in Canada. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it was more the fact that things were not happening in the States, is that correct? Yeah. But you were yeah. touring the States, too. Yeah, we toured the States right through, I guess, till well, we even toured in the 90s a fair bit, but promoting the Warner's records, yeah. Those were tough times. Can you explain that? Like, I always, I always wonder why a band could be as successful as you are in Canada, and maybe not make an impact in a different country. Does that, does it make sense to you, or does it? Like, is it a matter of how much you expose yourself down there and how much time you put into it, and it's simply just you gotta work it as much as you can, or is it more to it than that? I think that's a lot of it. Um, I've heard lots of stories of, you know, what could have happened and what might have happened and all that sort of stuff. I mean, one of the things that happened, well, when we signed to Warner Brothers, they were the, easily the biggest label in the world. And we were the smallest band that they'd ever signed. <laughs> they had, you know, Dolly Parton, they had Madonna, they had Prince, they had Miles Davis. I mean, they were all in the hallways and you're looking like, Jesus Christ, that's Miles Davis. Um, you know, and of course, people are looking at you like, "Can you make a photocopy of this for us, please?" And, yeah, we didn't know what we were doing there. Uh, and then the payola scandal happened, right when our record came out. So that might have been. And people have told me that we were a victim of that to some degree. Hard to say. Um, where I don't know if you were familiar with what that was at the time. Basically, record companies were taking DJs out for expensive dinners and holidays and other, you know, essentially bribes to play artists. So whether that would have happened with us anyways, hard to say. 
you know, there's a lot of bands uh, that emerge that don't take on a national level, especially in the States, and are quite popular regionally. Mm-hmm. Like, there's the Angora Ballroom Circuit. There's some great bands even now that tour that. Nobody knows who they are out West. Some great West Coast bands. Nobody knows who they are anywhere else. Um, Canada, we were lucky in the sense that uh, much music really took to us at the time. And they're, they're, they were kind of the leading edge of breaking music more than any radio station was. In fact, when we released our first Warner record and we had a song called Baby Ran, uh, rock radio really didn't touch it until much music was all over it. And then kids started to phone into the radio stations and they wanted to hear it. And, you know. And that did well in college radio stations in the States as well, did it not? Yeah, college was good in the States with us. But in those days, college was still pretty college. It wasn't until a little after that that it became an industry. <laughs> and by then we were we were dropped and you know didn't have the pull uh, through the colleges. But colleges in Canada, universities, you know, Frost Week was a big week. Frost Week was a way to break bands too. I mean, not only our band, but the hip and Pursuit of Happiness and, you know, tons of bands uh, would cut their teeth playing Frosh Weeks and then gain legions of fans from the universities, right? Um, and those people stuck with you even now. We still, we still get people that, you know, first saw us when they were at their first uni- university. So that's kind of cool. That is cool. I mean, it's neat to see, have that kind of relationship. Because oftentimes when the, the music that people grow up with is the music that stays with them the rest of their lives. Yeah. Well, I think both of us can be included in that, you know. So, yeah. It's formative. And were you able to enjoy the success in Canada, even though you were getting pressure from the U.S. or for the U.S. labels? Um, you know, I, I probably went through a phase where I was too obsessed with why we weren't more successful. <laughs> You know, I didn't enjoy it as much as I should have, you know, and and, uh, remember somebody gave me some advice, which I learned to take later, which is try to enjoy this while you can, you know. And it wasn't until maybe third record in with Sony that I was, you know what, I'm just going to just enjoy this. All parts of it, career, whatever happens, happens. Now, by that time, we had an established career enough that we could make a living and not, not worry too much. But I probably took things too seriously, things that I just had no control over either. You know, I just stuck more to keeping the music, which I did, writing, performing, and letting else everything else just fall where it falls. That's fine. I often wonder when, when you get involved with a major label, there's a lot of money that goes into making the product visible and mm-hmm. a lot of money that's coming out of your bank account or your future earnings. Mm-hmm. Was that, uh, and obviously being new to the music industry in that type of environment, was that, did that affect your band a lot? In what sense? In, in the sense that by the time you come out of that contract, um, you might have not made as much money as you, you hoped because of the success that you had, because Warners might have poured in a lot of money to promote you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, those were obviously very, very different times than I think they are now. Although I don't really know. I think there's some record companies that do do invest a lot, but they want more for it. You know, 
a record company in those days, it's a weird. It's a very, very bad loan is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> in the sense, you know, they give you, let's just say, $100,000 to make a record. It was more than that. But let's just say it's $100,000. And then they're going to sell that record for $15. Out of that $15, they're going to give you 85 cents. Okay. Now, they granted, they pay for the record. They press it. They put it in stores. They promote it. They may pay for a video. But then that those expenses get added into that $100,000. So let's say now it's $250,000. And you don't know that all this money is being used no. i mean that's like they kept taking it out of your future purse or whatever so there's two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and they're selling it for let's just say i don't know 20 bucks what you make is 85 cents out of that 20 bucks that that 85 cents goes against the two hundred fifty thousand dollars that they've loaned you so do you follow me here yeah yeah i remember when we were three or four records and we did five or six with sony and the president, who was the second president that we were dealing with at the time, Rick Camilleri, and he calls me into his office and goes, you know, you know, here's the books. And it's like, you guys aren't quite making us, making us enough money, but we love you so much. We're going to stick with you and you're going to make a couple more records with us. And I was like, wow. And then I go tell my manager and he's just like, that's horseshit. It's like, you know, basically you hadn't recouped the money they're still at that time making selling cds for 20 bucks a pop right we're getting paid a buck a, a cd you know okay so we're into them for eight hundred thousand over four or three or four records but they've made three or four million or five million on the sales you know you see what i'm saying yeah, here yeah. like so on, on the one set of books that we haven't recouped the 800 grand where we're actually then getting the, the dollar a cd so it's a funny game. At the same time, uh, you can walk, when they drop you or you walk away from it and the contract expires, they, uh, you don't owe them the money. They can't come after you. Right. It, it's all it's strictly out of the sales of the music. So that's, you know, we were out of the, mind, out of the mindset that, hey, you want to you wanna spend money on us? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, but really? they got some return from you guys. I mean... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we did, yeah, we did essentially nine records for major labels, so something must have gone right. And so when you said, i got to learn how to to enjoy this a little more and then realize that, and you said that's, that was around the third album, that's still pretty early in the in, in your lifespan there to, to come to that realization and to actually start enjoying it. How did that mm-hmm. affect you when, you when you decided to change your attitude that way? I was, uh, it, it was gradual, I got to admit, you know, I'd still get, you know, my knickers in a knot here and there, but uh, uh, very liberating, you know, just, you know, it really does come down to if you write a good song or you perform a good show, uh, good things will happen. And that's about all you can control, you know, you, you can't control that, you just do the best you can. So, yeah, it's just easier you know just letting things be what they are and uh, appreciating the subtleties you know one thing like we still play quite a lot 30 40 50 shows a year depending on circumstances um and a lot of the times we play the same 10 or 12 hit songs that people want to hear plus whatever we 
can try to inject into that set. But we really enjoy the subtleties of playing those same songs as a band, you know. Like, oh, you're kind of leaning in, you're pushing it there. That's kind of cool. And, you know, this this whole musician dynamic that happens, um, I wouldn't have thought about that 20 years ago at all. Just, you know, 30 years ago, all I want to do is get through it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, 20 years ago, it's like, how successful are we, you know? Now I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Look at how we're like going with this G that way. And da, 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 da. you know, I'm just enjoying the, the making of the music while we're making it. I mean, could you have imagined when you first started that you would be doing this at this point in your life? No, not at all. No, and it, you know, I get asked that in some fashion or other, like what was your goals when we started out? And it really was just the next gig or trying to make it and put out another record. It was never sort of this make a living. It was, I remember it was about 1992, I guess, when we got a whack of dough from Sony. And uh, like, I guess, I guess we can call this a career now. (laughs) (laughs) Was there any time after that that you thought, well, I don't know if we can continue doing this. Did you ever, I no. know you guys took a hiatus for a little while, but was there ever a point where you thought, oh, I, I can't do the music thing anymore? We never really took a hiatus. Oh, I, I thought you did around that. 2006, 2007? No, no, we've always been open for business. I mean, there's been some lean times, that's for sure. Uh, but no, we've always uh, always been open and always made a record. I mean, there's been gaps. Right. That's, it was a big gap in terms of creating just took longer than you know can i ask you about the lean times I, what does that mean um well the sense of it i get and i'm only you know i'm inside the goldfish bowl i can't really tell you what the goldfish bowl looks like so much as but the sense of it i get looking back is that we weren't as popular or there wasn't as much demand for the band or we weren't as on a pulse uh, and that's happened to us a couple of times where it feels like it's getting pretty thin out there. You know, the, the gigs aren't coming as good and they're not as high paid and the offers aren't great. And then all of a sudden, it just changes. Boom. All of a sudden, we are the flavor of the month in a, in a nostalgic way again. <laughs> and uh, There's no rhyme or reason behind us. It just happens. Not the, I know. It's... <laughs> I mean, right now it's a battle of attrition, right? <laughs> In the sense that uh, some of the classic rock bands, uh, you know, are are no longer. Either they're not with us in, on Earth anymore, or they just retired, um, or they've disbanded. Right. right. I mean, I I think to me the song is king, and when mm. you have a hit song or hit songs like you have. Obviously, that creates nostalgia, and and you know we're talking about people growing up with your music. Tell me about mm. that relationship we have with the hits, because the hits I find like a, a fascinating concept. I I don't know if every song that's a hit for you was something you thought this is going to be a hit. You might mm. have written other songs that you like way more that mean a lot more to you that never became a hit. But when a song becomes a hit. How does that affect you, and how does that change the, your perspective of that song? Yeah, that's, that's a good question, and it's it's an ongoing analysis, really. Um, 
you know, I had a, through the late 80s and the 90s, I kind of had a decent record of knowing which one was going to work, say about 40 to 50% of the time. I go, oh, this one's going to, this one's going to fly. And Dave says, that's actually a really good record. <laughs> like if you could be an A&R guy and be that good, you'd be, you'd be, you know, David Geffen or something. Um, you know, there's been some where I thought, oh, for sure this one's going to fly. And it doesn't. And you're like, hmm, that's weird. But uh, you can always tell a song that has its own energy. And then it gets thrown out there. And, you know, we had some good support, certainly, from record companies and whatnot. Uh, but it still has to hit. And, you know, it's funny. Like, what is a hit? What does that mean? And I'm sure there's definitions of why that word is used. But for me, it's something that you hear right away. And that happens to me sometimes. Even now, I hear a song and I go, what's this? You know, it just, it hits me. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, ah, I perk up and I want to know more. And uh, and then, so in our case, when it happens, it's a, it's, you, there's while it's happening there's a bit of a buzz so you we notice it from shows let's just say ocean pearl or you know i go blind whatever it would be you know sheila whatever song we notice that the crowd would really get animated when they heard it sometimes before it was even released wow. so then you knew you had something uh certainly once it was on the radio you know that's you could tell that's that's the one they want to hear you can just feel the lift in the room you know, now we're the stewards of these songs, right? We're like, we're like, we keep the archives. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we deliver, we deliver the song that, that uh, 5440 in 1990 created and we deliver it fairly well. We're probably the best at it, I hope. And people like I say, like you say, relive that experience. So it's a, it's a nice thing to be, to have that, right? It's, it's a known trip that people can go on and feel satisfied, right? Like if you go, you could spend $300 and go see a hockey game, which I've done, and uh, they lose. It's not a fun time. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> but if you spend, you know, a little bit of money and go see one of your favorite bands like Neil Young or something, even then, it took me three times seeing Neil Young to hear Cinnamon Girl. I finally heard it. <laughs> and I cried. <laughs> So, but yeah, you're rewarded that way. So it's it's a nice, it's having songs that are hits to, to the audience. Uh, once again, the subtlety of it. And then you, you incorporate the energy of the room and the people that are with you when you play it. You know, to, to, for any band or artist to say they're bored of it, they don't want to play it because it's, you know, that's all people want to hear. They're missing something. They're missing that experience. It's so unique each and every time. Um, yeah, sure. I know, you know what to do, but it's a new experience. And I presume you never hear it the way we hear it, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I hear Baby Ran and it takes me to a different place in my life. There's a memory attached to it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Your memory could be in the studio or it could be dealing with a record company. Um, but I presume that shifts, that different memories are created with your songs. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I can I can think about those things. Um, that song is yeah, certainly when we play every show, pretty much. I think I can remember the studio. I can remember a lot of things about it. But 
you know, when I'm playing it, I'm just in, enjoying in, into the moment of it and going on the crest of the wave and, you know, the swirl and those things are really, uh, really where it's at playing it anyway. So did I hear you correctly? You did say you, you cry when you first, you finally heard Cinnamon Girl? Yeah. <laughs> can can you elaborate on that? <laughs> so I saw Neil Young, I guess about, it was the third or fourth time. I've seen him four times. I think it was, no? Yeah, it was the third time out of four. The fourth time was just an acoustic show, which was really brilliant too. Um, and the first time I saw him, he was just, you know, doing doing the hits, but he didn't play that one. And I still enjoyed it. Right. And he did a great saw, a great version of Day in the Life by the Beatles as the encore, which I thought was killer. Wow. The second time I saw him was the, I don't know how familiar you are with Neil Young, but he did this Greendale thing. Yep. Where, where he had the play on stage, like all his people, that, you know, from his ranch or whatever, yeah. and they're actors. Yeah. And there was a book, and a friend of mine got me a signed copy, and I met uh, Elliot Roberts, his manager there. It was, didn't meet him, but it was it was great. And uh, but he, you know he <laughs> he was great. He uh, so he had a music stand, and he was singing the words to this play, you know. And it was Crazy Horse was the band, and he had a fan to keep him cool, but the fan blew off all the words. <laughs> And he had to half stop the whole show, which was fantastic. And he goes, I promise I'll do a double encore with all the hits. <laughs> if I just can start again. And the crowd stood up and cheered, and I did too. Uh, but he didn't play Cinnamon Girl there. <laughs> it wasn't until he was at Rogers Center, you know, where the Canucks play. And I got some great seats. And uh, I don't know, third or fourth song in, there it was. And I just, you know. Uh, I don't know. For that that song, just I wanted to hear it, and I did. Wow! So, hey, like you say, like for fans, right? Like I remember sitting in my parents. You know, they had the old uh, cabinet stereo, right? Yeah. wooden cabinet stereo where you lifted and you played the record, and and I put on, uh, you know, Young, and just get a pillow by one of the speakers and listen to the whole thing and just be there. It was just. I don't know, for some reason that that song really connected with me. That was a hit to me. I don't know if it was a hit on the radio. It probably was. I yeah, guess. I think so. So when when people come up to you, and there are songs that obviously you wrote that means that much to them in the same way that Cinema and Girl meant to you, like when when somebody says that to you, how does that make you feel? Well, I respect. I was res like exactly. That's kind of where I go. I respect that their feelings and their emotions. Um, I also, you know, know that they like the song, not the person, and that's that's a distinguish there. I'm I'm not afraid, or I'm not. Uh, that's a clear line to me. Like, I don't regret that I didn't meet Neil Young. I don't know if I think that might have burst my bubble, to be quite honest. Um, but because I, I just love what he created, I love the song. I don't love the man. I don't know the man. You know. Right. So. When people come up, and that happens quite a bit, I get a lot of people saying that song really did something to me. I mean, even other artists, you know, um, people telling me Ocean Pro was the first thing they learned on a guitar, or uh, this record made them want to be a singer, and all that sort of stuff. That that feels really good to hear, 
and uh, I go back to what I heard and you know so I respect that feeling but I don't take credit for it I don't feel like I'm some sort of god or anything like that and it takes a lot for somebody to come up to me and say something like that not an easy thing to do mm-hmm. but I appreciate that but I also say like I'm the steward you know I I just look after it and deliver it you know so Happy if we take that a step further, when when somebody like Hootie and the Blowfish take your song and making it a, mm-hmm. make it a hit, mm-hmm. um, and it's something that you might have created in your basement and whatever, and all of a sudden it's on Friends TV show or soundtrack, and mm-hmm. what does that do to you? <laughs> a number of things. What where, where are you? What are you referring to? Well, I mean, you know, obviously. It must be nice to know that something you created is appreciated by somebody else, another artist, enough that yeah. they would cover it. Yes. So and those guys, must... yeah, they were, they were, so we played States for a bit in the 80s and they were students at University of South Carolina and they would come up to Washington, D.C. We played the 930 Club quite a bit and they came to all our shows and they played every R.E.M. song and every 5440 song that they knew. That was their, their frat band. And they became Hootie and the Blowfish. So they had a, they were big fans of the first two records on Warner's and then never heard from them again until I heard that they, you know, there was this band we were playing actually in Cincinnati and my management office called and said, uh, there's this band, you know, and they're pretty big and they just, at the B-side of one of their songs is I Go Blind. I went, what? <laughs> took a while to put it together. You know, it's frustrating for me because I, re- I distinctly I remember this. And this is this is a bit of sour grapes, but you know, here you go. Uh, when we were in Los Angeles playing the final record uh, for Lenny Warnker, who was the president of Warner Brothers, and our guy, you know, played him "I Go Blind," and it's just like it sounds so good, and, you know. And he's nodding away, and but. The record, you know, the executives determined that a song called "I Want to Know," which is a good song, should be the single, and you know, and I always thought they missed the boat on "I Go Blind," and and even "I Go Blind" wasn't really released in Canada until Warner Canada released it due to demand by the fans. Never got released in the states, and it, it felt kind of, you know, I was a little vindicated. Uh, 10 years later when Hootie made it a hit and it was the top three played on AC radio. We got an award for it in 1996. So that felt good, you know, but at the same time it kind of felt like Jesus, you know, you had one, (laughs) you had one, you bastards at Warner brothers in 1986. (laughs) You just didn't know it. (laughs) Um, I want to talk to you about um, a family curse, which I think is a, fantastic name for a project there you go there's a blues band right there <laughs> there you go yes so what's it like working with your daughter is it when when you work with your daughter is it does it become a musician to musician relationship or does it change the relationship that you have the father and daughter relationship well it it's kind of both she's definitely you know picked it up very well and it's an eight in her um we speak very common language, <laughs> you know, uh, but it's natural. In other words, you know, I have two kids. Uh, the oldest, we, we get along really well and also speak a very good language. It's different. With Candle and I, it's 
musically, we kind of go to the same places very quickly, always have. Um, so we did this thing kind of through COVID where it's like, I got these ideas kicking around. I don't know what to do with them. You want to sing on them? And she went, sure, I'll give it a shot. And I was like, hmm, that's kind of cool. And so I just, you know, and I was learning how to play some slide guitar, like, you know, not, not, not good enough, really thinking it's not good enough for 5440, but hey, maybe, maybe <laughs> it's like, hey, that's cool. So, you know, it, it happened very organically and spontaneously. And, you know, bada bing, bada boom, there we were. And it's like, well, we got ourselves a little band here. So made a family curse. And, and not just the little side project where you just record something and have a sing on it, but you're creating a, a different persona and and yeah. videos like many videos yeah so that was that was the covid times <laughs> first thing i did was order a green screen on amazon <laughs> and she got stuck she was living in montreal but she got stuck during covid and decided to stay with us so i was like okay well let's let's do some stuff you know um yeah it was it was it's quite a lot of fun uh she decided to, to distinguish, you know, her own career, which is really strong and, you know, her own music by becoming these personas. So we wanted to be sort of outlaw, Texan, kind of bluesy, right. snake and desert stuff. And, uh, you know, she wanted to sort of like pursue that angle. And I was like, yeah, go for it. So we decided to, yeah, go for it. And will you be doing more of this? Um, well, we did a little tour last summer. Uh, you know, I learned pretty quickly that uh, unless you call 5440, if you're out on the road, it costs money. <laughs> <laughs> so we put, we put a little band together and we were on the road for about 10 shows and a uh, heck of a lot of fun. We barely broke even, you know. Okay, and the other thing that you did during COVID was work on this latest album for 5440. Mm hmm. Yeah. West Coast band is is there a West Coast sound? Um, I don't know what that is. Uh, cer certainly, you know, kind of like options could be that sort of groove. But um, I mean, it's us, so yes, true. Uh, you know, alluding back to sort of the attitude, you know, of of that scene when we grew up, and you know, like people like Art Bergman and subhumans and doa and they were the more of the punky stuff but even other artists there's a general kind of attitude that i think we've in point of sticks we've we've carried and still have i think it's an eight in everybody that's from that era and it sticks with you it's hard to put a finger on it it's our own version of an attitude of irreverence and indifference but carrying caring quite a bit about what you do that makes any sense at all <laughs> well it's an interesting album because it seems more like your earlier stuff to me yeah. as compared to your last album which i really liked which mm. was a lot more sophisticated yeah I, yeah like yeah. it just seemed like this one was more and punk's not the right word for it but there was a different kind of energy to it yeah i you know it's rock and roll really in some ways um yeah, well, you know, once again, we, we we just go where the muse takes us, seems seems like. That that record, the West Coast Band, is, is a lot of fun. 
you know, because they're all stories of the band. And it started with Zoom calls uh, during COVID, where we were just, you know, we had this Thursday five o'clock that Brad and Alan, our manager, decided to do, where we would all, everybody grabs a cocktail from their house and, you know, cheers, and then we just, there's nothing to talk about because there's no gigs for two years, right? right? There's nothing, but we just started telling stories and having a lot of laughs about, you know, the times we've had over the last 35, 40 years. So uh, I had a bunch of stuff from Soundcheck and other ideas kicking around on my iPhone. And I went, you know, we could just turn some of these things into songs. Like, what the heck? So we had a list of 25 little phrases that we stuck with, like every band has their own language. And uh, I started taking some of those riffs and let's, you know, let's call this one Chicago. Let's call this West Coast Bands. And I would, it was the first record in, uh, that I've done, that we've done, uh, where I didn't write a word down. Really? Yeah, I sang at Stream of Consciousness. So I basically, after a Zoom call, you get so inspired. I think the first song that I wrote was Table for One, which is about our, our drummer, Matt. And uh, uh, what is the riff? Anyway, I can't remember. But I had this riff, and it's like, oh. And I and it was the story. It's the story of why he's called Table for One, and it's in the song. <laughs> and I want to get into it too much, but <laughs> ever since then, he's been called Table for One. <laughs> and... Uh, I sang, I, I put a quick arrangement, quick blues arrangement, like boom, it's done. And uh, sang three versions of it, you know, just telling the story as best as I could, quickly rhyming, you know. And then I listened to each each three passes and, oh, that's better than that one. That's, and then there it was. It was done. I sent it to them. They all went, this is amazing, you know. Wow. <laughs> but you're done. And uh, we retracted, we it, obviously, but... I sent, so the way the record worked is I would stripe that and then I sent it to Matt and he has a little, you know, electronic drum kit at home and he just put it to my iPhone demo, sent it back to me and I sent it to Brad and he came up with a fill-in bass line and, and then my brother on sax and, and Dave on guitar and then we basically had the song and then, then we went and retracted it when things loosened up a little bit after some of the COVID and got in a studio and it for real it was just so alive mm -hmm. you know rather than sort of slaving over it we just nah let's just do it so i presume that in the early years you would have spent a lot of time in in the studio trying to perfect things and and making it as good as possible and spending a lot of studio money <laughs> this wasn't that um no why why do you continue to record? Like, why would would the would the business being what it is and things so different? What mm -hmm. motivates you to do what you do? It's funny. It's a funny question because, you know, creativity is important to us. Like Brad says, you know, if we didn't make records, we probably wouldn't be a band. Like uh, my answer to what your question is also is it proves that we're doing it for the right reasons because no one is asking for a new fifty four forty record. No one is paying us to make a 5440 record like they used to. Right. And the, uh, we do it because we're compelled to do it because, once again, the muse is there and we're choosing to go with it and listen to it. And it's fun. It's fun as, he as heck. So, um, you yeah, know, that's why. 
you go as a band we kind of had a record every two years for a while there although that that we had a few glitches in that concept but where you have an experience in the world and the world itself changes and then you 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 throw out what you experienced and what you see and the vision that you have after those two years and it's really remarkable if you look at the body of work you know this record the record is that what is exactly what it is a record of that time from our perspective musically Mm -hmm. Uh, so why would you stop doing that if you didn't have to i'm sorry but is writing a thing you always do or is it you do because you want to record uh no no i don't always write but the the it always happens you know what i mean it's like it's time i'll pick up a guitar and something will come out and i'll record it but there's always a thing where we're like it's time to it's time to make a new record in other words time to make some new music and then record which is those are two different things right clearly both a lot of fun and sometimes the writing really evolves in the recording studio it's a sketch of an idea and sometimes it can change dramatically um, I mean, we, we had a song called Since When that was a pretty big hit and it made a lot of money because it was used on a couple commercials and it's that Fender Rhodes riff um, but in the studio it was a different song altogether so the arrangement was the same and the music was the same once again a blues kind of thing um, but I just felt that that the the riff was too good for what I was singing over it. In other words, what I was singing over it was holding it back a bit. Hmm. And I threw it out. And I just, one day, even before the producer, who was Garth Richardson, got there, I went with the engineer and I said, I just let me just sing something else over this. I just got this idea. And it's very basic, very, you know, I am leaving, I am leaving, I am leaving today. You know, I think the melody I had was way too thought out, way too melodic. Or just a you know a blues let's just boogie, uh, and it worked, you know. So that's an example of as you're writing it, as you're recording it, it starts to become its own thing. So you you got to listen to that, you know, too. So the other thing that amazes me is the fact that your band, for the most part, I mean bands are hard to keep together, and uh, you know it just seemed like in the first few years you probably change more members than later on. But you're, mm-hmm. the, the core of your band has been together for a long time. Mm-hmm. What's the secret to that? Well, you know, we the, the, what we say is it, it, you pick people that are a good hang. You know, we don't care if you're a good player. <laughs> it's, it's someone that you can be in a van with for three weeks in a row. <laughs> Enjoy that experience. And that really is the secret. It's it's, and of course now we've all been around the block together so so long that it, you know we, we really enjoy each other's company. To tell you the truth, you know when we go out on the road, we'll we'll meet at a city or whatever an airport, and we'll get to the town, and we'll all go out for a nice dinner, like old fishing buddies catching up on stuff, and then we get to work. Um, so that that is really it. Just you know, it didn't matter if you could play so much as you could hang. Well, you've done well. Um, I really appreciate you taking this time to talk to me. I've been a fan yeah, for a long time, and as I said, there's some songs that has been a big part of my life that brings back great memories. 
So thank you for that, that and thank you for doing this. Yeah, no worries. It was a nice conversation. Good stuff. Great. Thank you. Thank you.